The Articulate Coven is the original, unofficial podcast and fan community for Anne Rice's Interview with the Vampire and Anne Rice's Immortal Universe from AMC and AMC+. Welcome to The Articulate Coven, the unofficial podcast for Anne Rice's Vampire Chronicles, The Vampire Lestat. We are your hosts. I'm Joel. I'm Ashley. And we are the Articulate Coven. Uh, thank you for joining us for this episode. In this one, we're going to be discussing the novel, The Queen of the Damned from 1988. So if you haven't read that one or you'd like to avoid spoilers, uh, maybe go ahead and pause this one and then dive into the novel. But this one's been out there quite a while. On an upcoming episode, we're going to be talking about the movie uh, version of this specifically. Um, but this is one of those books that... When I think of the Vampire Chronicles, Ashley, I think of this book in a lot of ways. First and foremost, because of the like sprawling historical story that it tells, the saga of the vampires, as it were. But very specifically for me personally, this one is not going to resonate for everybody else as much. But the cover of this book and the title of this book caused much consternation amongst my uh, <laughs> junior high classes and <laughs> teachers as I was trying to read it. Uh, I was about um, I don't know, probably 12, maybe 13 when I was reading this one. And I very specifically remember having to wrap my paperback copy in uh, duct tape so that uh, no one would be offended by the title of the book and uh, what I was reading. So that's my main memory when I think about The Queen of the Damned. That's amazing. That's hilarious. <laughs> Did you get in trouble for reading a naughty book, Joel? Oh, I got, I always got in trouble for reading <laughs> naughty books, but this one specifically had a dirty word on the cover. And that's oh, yeah. like, that, that's beyond like maybe a, a, a bodice ripping, uh, <laughs> female <romance>. protagonist. <laughs> yeah. Not, nothing like that. This was a actual dirty word. You, you, and not only that, but it was the queen of the dirty word, huh? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, I'd forgotten how crazy this book is and what i really love i think one of the things that has stuck with me about this book is just that the mythos that it really kind of lays down for for Anne rice's vampires um you know like the beginnings of everything which i think is really cool and this is one of the first times we get storytelling from so many different perspectives so we hear other voices other than just lestat and louis who we're used to hearing um i think that that's one of the reasons why this book has always kind of stood out in my memory it sort of sets up so much great storytelling from the perspectives of these these new vampires that we're meeting and that we're going to we're going to get books full books about later on we had gotten in the Vampire Lestat, we get the sort of the the story dumps that he gets and then sends to us. Yeah, Marius's story, most importantly. But those are very different than this, where you have whole pieces of the book that Lestat wasn't even present for. He's, yeah, he's not even a character in this part of the story. Uh, some many big portions of it, he didn't even exist for the story that they're telling. So it, it is really amazing. Interesting thing that I notice here as I'm looking at the Wikipedia entry for this book, uh, in a 2014 interview where they were announcing the release or the upcoming release of Prince Lestat, uh, the first in the new series of novels uh, that Anne has begun releasing over the last few years, uh, her son Christopher said that that book, Prince Lestat, was the first true sequel to The Queen of the Damned. And I think in hindsight, that is sort of something that was very much evident to me, too. 
and it's going to come up a lot in my notes as we go through the story of this book, but there are so many things in the modern books, in this latest rash of uh, Lestat tells, that a lot of the fan base have railed against. They've said, oh, this stuff comes out of left field. It, It doesn't connect to the stories that we know and love and the characters that we know and love, and yet... If you read this book and you go back and really pay attention, um, a lot of it seems like these ideas, maybe even fully formed, have been percolating in Anne's head for decades. Um, In particular, there's one line that I want to reference. Uh, It's right out of the very beginning of the book here. Chapter three is The Legend of the Twins. And this is the story of the archaeologist who uh, Mahare had worked with for years to try to find her sister. Uh, And he's, um, well, it's actually his daughter that's sort of talking about the fall of her father. She says they'd laughed at him or ignored him. Not believable. Such a link between the old world and the new. 6,000 years old indeed. They'd relegated him to the crazy camp along with those who talked of ancient astronauts Atlantis and the lost kingdom of Mu. Now, <laughs> the lost kingdom of Mu has not been referenced in any of the new novels. No spoilers here. However, <laughs> Atlantis is in the title of one of the new novels. And um, I think anyone who's paid any attention to some of the railings from fans who don't like it, uh, some of them have even rest- referenced ancient astronauts. I think the concepts that Anne are, are, are playing with, it's broader than that. But again, she was talking about this stuff right from the very beginning. I think a lot of this stuff has been in her mind to connect even to the vampire mythos all the way from the early 80s here when she was coming up with this book. I really do. I think a lot of this stuff was there from the beginning. And it's interesting now to see it in hindsight. Well, and I love I love authors that have put that much thought into their, the universes they're creating. You know, Stephen King's really good about that. You know, there's references in, in so many of his works to other others of his works, you know, other characters, you know, it's it, the, in the um, Dark Tower series, you know, there's so many references to his work and even other people's works, you know, he references, there's some Harry Potter references buried in there too. And so it's, um, I, I, as a reader, I always really appreciate authors that, that put that much thought and energy into their, into their world creation. And I'm really attracted to that kind of storytelling. So the first part of this book is all over the place. We're introduced to dozens of characters. It seems like I, my wife always complains about having to keep up with the game of Thrones cast list. And this is (laughs) that and more. So when we get to this part of the TV series on Hulu, I think she's not going to be very pleased, but we're most of these characters we've actually been introduced to before characters like Armand and Dan, Daniel, who is the reporter from the interview with the vampire. He's finally given a name in this book. Uh, Marius, we we meet Louis again. We meet Gabrielle, uh, Santino. Uh, So a lot of new characters, though, too. Characters like Tough Cookie and Alex and Larry and all of these sort of like junior vampires that come and go pretty quickly in some cases. But all of them are so well sculpted. You know, Anne has such a gift of creating, you know, fully formed human beings in just 
a few pages. I know a lot of people complain about her descriptions of scenes or, or scenery. She'll just spend a day and a half on the curtain sometimes, it seems like. But when she comes to character descriptions and the actual building of those characters, I think she does such a great job. Somebody like Tough Cookie literally has one chapter but I remember Tough Cookie. I think about her sometimes. I think about that story and the ups and downs, the rises and falls, and all of that adds to the drama as you see what Akasha is doing and then finally eventually understand why she's doing it and and you know, you're sort of swept up in it as as uh, part of Lestat's story. Well, it's so funny. I remember the first time I read that read read this book being really impatient with some of that um and just being like please just get to the vampires i know and give a care about um but i will say with this read i was completely sucked in to those real peripheral storylines that are just sort of laying the laying the groundwork for what's about to what's about to go down and and really help create that tension and that confusion that's that's happening amongst the characters as they're trying to figure out what the hell's going on around them so and what is going on around them? Two things primarily. There is the dream of the twins, which we've already referenced. The the story of the twins, the archaeologist has this, but he's having these vivid dreams uh, uh, of this story uh, sort of realized, played out in front of him. And many immortals, many vampires across the world are having this dream of the twins as well. No one that we meet at this point in the story anyway, knows what to do with that dream, but many of them are having it. The other thing that ties this uh, all together is that some powerful being, an ancient vampire, we're pretty sure fairly early on. And of course we looking outside, having the hindsight that the vampire Lestat novel brings us, we're pretty sure that this is Akasha, but some ancient powerful being is killing vampires in mass, not only individually, but burning coven houses, burning, you know, hideouts, the whole nine yards and uh, blowing them up with this power of the fire gift, the spontaneous combustion. You want to talk about a really exciting set of, visual sort of showpieces for the series. These attacks when sort of the invisible powerful being is coming through and blowing up bars and uh, restaurants and houses and all sorts of stuff. That's going to be really cool to see. They're going to need a really good special effects budget for that season. (laughs) Absolutely. The whole season. In fact, all of the things that these ancient ones do when they come together, uh, this is going to be one of those moments when you're hopeful the first couple of seasons have been successful because the budget has got to be there strongly. You're absolutely right. So as all of this sort of finally comes to a head, we realize that it is Akasha that is doing this. She's the one that's burning out all of these uh, fledgling vampires. She has destroyed Inkle, in fact, uh, swallowed him whole, effectively left a shell of him behind, pinned Marius in their sanctuary, and is now running around the globe doing what exactly? What is she building towards? And that's what we find out as we get into part two. What did you think about, in particular, let's talk about for a minute, uh, Jesse, the character of Jesse Reeves, and the continuing story of the Talamasca. Um, This is something that we got sort of a, a glimpse at Uh, in the last story, I I felt like there are, you know, pieces of, there is a group maybe on the outside, but here is the first time that we actually see them as a real organization and get some idea of what they're doing. They're, they're 
monitoring and chronicling the stories of ghosts and ghoulies. In particular, they know all about the vampires, it turns out. Yeah, this would be, I think, my dream job, you know, when I was when I was reading the books. Um I love the introduction of the Talamasca. I love I love the the characters that we're gonna meet later on and and get to know better and tell the body thief. Um I uh and I've read and I've read um the Witching Hour and the the Mayfair the Mayfair books too. So you get you get a lot more of of the Talamasca in those books. And um I just I I I love it. I love and I love Jesse. I like Jesse a lot. I, I think that um they did a really good job of fleshing that character out pretty quickly. I love, of course, I'm always delighted by strong, beautiful, fabulous, redheaded characters. Um, and it's, you know, easy to identify with, to me, when I was reading the books, because she was a mortal and she was, you know, learning about all of these things and investigating all these things. To me, she was like the character that I really connected to the most as a reader. One of the interesting things is all of these little stories, when we're meeting Jesse, when we spend the long section with Daniel and Armand, the the first section with Cayman, uh, those sections in particular reminded me a lot of the story structure that we saw in the first season of Castle Rock on Hulu. You know, you would have several episodes in a row that followed a fairly formulaic, straightforward narrative format, and then suddenly there would be one episode that featured a, a side character as the center point for this particular episode. And it would be told out of chronologically uh, chronological order. It would sort of catch you up on things you had missed or jump ahead perhaps, or tell a side story or whatever. And because of that, at the end, at the beginning, it might seem like it's out of place by the end of the episode, or at least by the next episode, things would have fallen together and you'd realize how much more they had fleshed out the, overall idea of how these things are, are rolling out. It was just a really well done uh, plan, in my opinion, uh, that Castle Rock used this year. I think this is absolutely doable here, too. The whole section with Daniel and Armand could play out in one single episode. You could open with Daniel on the run again, you know, and for the first 15 or 20 minutes have Armand uh, sort of like a spook in the background. You don't even know who it is if you haven't read these books or you don't know the story. And then suddenly have that character come back from previous seasons and you realize, oh, this junkie that I'm watching now is actually the reporter that interviewed Louis in the very beginning. Oh my gosh, like uh, all of this is connecting. You know, you could have that play out over the course of 45 minutes or so and really get to know them and their relationship that they have that is apart from everything else. I think about... Um, the most recent season of Westworld had a great episode. I think it was number eight, Kiksuya. It's all focused on the Native American tribe within Westworld and this one Native American character in particular. It is absolutely a work of art. And the story of Cayman forgetting and remembering himself over the course of centuries, of him toying with the Talamasca a few times, all of those sorts of things, I think that could be really, really well done again over the course of 45 minutes or an hour and um, could be almost a self-contained story that would be a great, great showcase for whatever brilliant actor they get to play Cayman eventually which by the way as soon as I say that I immediately have the vision of Cayman from the Queen of the Damned movie and I hate that movie all over again <laughs> <laughs> I haven't done my rewatch of it yet um, because I really wanted my reread to be very pure 
but I'm really looking forward to hating it all over again too. I do feel like so much of of, of the early sections of this book kind of have have a feel to me like mentally I'm sort of making that um you know in 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 uh in crime shows the 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 board with all the red string attaching all the different storylines together that's sort of what mentally my brain is doing when I when I read this book um especially trying to remember what's related and what's not like sort of tying those lines together and and sort of figuring out how it's all going to coalesce you know into into like the story where we're in in our present time well and this is that's one place where like with with uh game of thrones i feel like in the end the television show can be an actual like better version of the story in some ways because it'll cut away some of the fat and get directly to like you'll it'll be more obvious what is color and what is um important to the plot you know as you move through those scenes uh the the other thing that struck me in here as we get sort of all the vampires grouping up and you've basically got the one group that's hanging out with Mahare and then you've got Akasha and Lestat on their own as she's trying to woo him to her side. Here's the cool thing that happens in this novel. Lestat gets superpowers. Uh, you know, I mean, he, he was a pretty powerful vampire for his age anyway. And Anne explains that away by him getting blood from Marius and him being born from, um, uh, uh, now I can't think of his creator's name, uh, Magnus. Uh, Magnus creates him, and Magnus had never created a vampire before Lestat, so, so there's like an extra jolt there. But still, he's just a you know 200-year-old change vampire at this point. But now he's drinking continuously and consistently from, from the original fount, uh, he becomes her consort. He gains the gift of flight. He gains all of the fire gifts, et cetera, et cetera. I love the moment when he's sort of testing out some of his, his newfound strength. He's uh, He's been with Akasha for a while. This is in Chapter 14. He wakes up in the palace. He's being bathed by these servant women that she has and he's experimenting with flight and telekinesis and spirit travel and everything he says i didn't like this being invisible leaving my body and i wasn't going to do it again i thought right there she is already writing tale of the body fever literally the (laughs) next book is about the concept of losing your physical form and and traveling between bodies and what is spirit versus what is form and all of those concepts are really delved into completely so again like foreshadowing in a big way that just gives me the utmost respect for Anne. and when i think of uh, we just mentioned the telemasca sort of briefly there but when you think of the pop culture takes on this idea and i mean surely some form of this has antecedent in other you know versions of literature but specifically things like the watchers in buffy Buffy the vampire slayer yes (laughs) yeah or the watchers in um the highlander series Mm -hmm. it is absolutely the talamasca just you know you give them a name change and you slightly change the origins to suit your own universe that you're building but like it is the exact same organizations and and it's the exact same ideas and so i think about how influential she's been in those specific ways and then in broad ways as far as like universe building and consistent saga um what's the chronology or or however you want to say it you know that level of things that we sort of take for granted now in a world where we've got 
22 Marvel movies and counting or whatever, but like that it's not, it's not normal. It didn't have to be this way. And I don't think that Anne gets enough credit for those pieces that she's brought to pop culture. Oh, I would agree with that a hundred percent. And I don't think she gets enough. I just in general, don't think she gets enough credit for the depth of, of her work and the depth of, of, of her writing and the depth of the creations, because I think a lot of people think it's just, you know, we joke about it, about the sexy vampires. And I think that a lot of people just sort of write it off as, oh, it's just, you know, silly, sexy vampires. But there's a lot of meat to, to these stories. Oh, absolutely. And I'm, and we're getting into a stretch that I particularly love where I feel like Anne gets real metaphysical for a while in her own life and begins to explore some things too. The tale of the body thief, thief and Memnock the yeah. devil in particular. But again, all of that stuff is laid out here. Uh, Mahare is telling the story of her and her sister to the big group. And uh, there are several things in there that again, reference some of these modern places where she's taking the vampire narrative and make me think she was there all along. Specifically, there are a couple of references that Mahari makes to the world of the spirits before mankind became conscious. She talks about the spirits talking about watching us change from apes to man. And that's something that's referenced again in Memnock the Devil and again in some of these most recent novels. Uh, just Again, a long-term thinking and, and a wavelength, I guess, that Anne has been on for, you know, 30 or 40 years now, almost. Yeah, it's, yeah, I don't, I mean, you're 100% right about all of that. It's just, I'm excited because, you know, I'm real behind on the newer books. So I'm really excited to see how all this is going to line up and lay in lay in each other you know it's like it's like the little russian nesting dolls and i'm gonna open you open the next one and there's more inside and it's and it's it's an you know it's such a an epic adventure that we've gotten to be on for decades and i'm i'm as a reader i'm really grateful for it I am I'm very excited to see how you respond to the the modern novels in comparison to uh you know as somebody who's looking at them with fresh eyes but also having gone through all the other novels more recently as we sort of work through the whole series it'll be really really interesting. Um let's talk about Akasha's plan. So when we get right down to Ooh. it what she's going to do is she's she's going to take men out of the world. Uh, men are trash 90- y'all. 90% of men, is that it? Or 99% of men? I can't remember now what her numbers are, but effectively she's going to decimate the male population completely from the earth. And she even says in in a couple of generations, it'll be okay. We can allow men to flourish again because we will have fixed the world with them being gone. Uh, a couple of, two things came up to me. First and foremost, uh, obviously last year we had the um, big infinity war film with the, the Avengers and, you know, Thanos, whole thing is like, let's just wipe out half the population. That'll solve, you know, world peace. It'll solve hunger. It'll solve our resources fight, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. My question then is, do you also institute like a birth policy so we can't repopulate up to those levels again? But, um, <laughs> never, never mind the despot's particular logic. It is interesting though, that, the simple solution of removal of obstacles, you know, first of all, it clearly won't work. It's totally, uh, immoral. It's totally, um, unethical and it's not even, um, 
practically applicable. You can't, you couldn't do it in, in practice and get away with it and have the result that you wanted. But I, it was interesting looking at those two comparisons between sort of Akasha, the all powerful vampire and Thanos wielding the infinity gauntlet and snapping, not just men, but you know, half of you ladies out of existence too. At least he was an equal opportunity destroyer, right? Yeah, well, I, I appreciate that she's trying to smash the patriarchy in such a really big way. Um, and I have to be honest, like, I didn't remember, <laughs> I didn't remember that being her, like, goal at all. I, like, I get, I, I got into it and really got into my reread and I was like, I don't remember so many details of this book, but I was, you know, there's, there's the part of me that's like, yeah, you know, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> Obviously, I don't really think that, but I mean, we all have our days where I feel like, you know, maybe the world would be a better place if it was a little bit more of a a matriarchal society. I'm not saying I think that we should kill 90% of the men, guys. Don't misunderstand me. I don't agree with the queen of the Here's what's killing me. Here's what's killing me. The day that I was listening to this part of the audiobook, I was literally listening to Akasha's argument, her trying to win Lestat over, the same day that Dr. Blasey Ford was being questioned in front of Congress. <laughs> and I thought several times, you know what? It's hard to argue with the lady. Yep. <laughs> men are the problem. Go ahead. I mean, we're not supposed to say men are trash, but I can understand how people feel that way sometimes. <laughs> Uh, it just seems like an awful uh, higher percentage of men are uh, of that persuasion than, not than all women men. anyway. Not all men, Joel. Hashtag not That's all right. men. That's right. Hashtag not all men. <laughs> hashtag, <laughs> hashtag not all vampires either, Ashley. Not all exactly. vampires are on board with this. I did, I did think it was interesting that she effectively has no one on her side when it comes right down to it. That none of the elders and first of all this group is obviously very selective it's basically based on who either akasha couldn't kill directly or she wasn't positive she could and then those that lestat loves specifically and she thought them being alive would aid her case uh, or him winning him over to her case i guess i should say but still no one in this group looks at her plan looks at the odds against survival if they fight her and says, yeah, sure, I'm in with you. Like, I am I mean, it just seems like surely there's at least one lackey in the group. That's the thing that struck me as odd is that what Anne has created here is an entire, you know, pantheon sort of of vampires that are effectively all benevolent, really, when it comes right down to it. Like the true evil ones don't last centuries except for i mean there are there are a a couple of uh examples clearly especially in the modern novels there's some older vampires that have resurfaced that are uh, pretty dastardly dudes and dudettes as that were but the the number of true chaos agents i guess i should say not not evil or good but those who are for chaos versus um you know stability there, yeah. there just aren't many. Akasha's the only one, really, that's up for chaos. It's true, but I think that part of that is because these, all of these vampires that 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 we're hanging out with in this book, so many of them 
have a love for humanity, have a love for people, have a love for the art that humans make. And they really romanticize humans, um, even though they're, you know, feeding on them. But they still have this very kind of romantic love for humanity. And I think that that's really the reason why they don't lean towards her side. You know, it would be an easy choice to make. I mean, it's not really long-term, especially the older ones. They don't even really have to feed that much. It's not really going to affect them, you know? But I think that it's really that that love of humanity that they all that they all kind of share and I think it's one of the reasons why they're all drawn to each other too as as like the little coven that they they become and that they create for themselves it is it's all based in in wanting to be around humans and wanting to connect with humans you know even though they don't want to really want to reveal themselves or reveal what they truly are they still want to be among humans they're always trying to figure out ways to make themselves look more human and to blend in and so that they can sit around in the cafes and and watch humans kind of interact and live. That's always one of my favorite things, hearing the different vampires describe the little motions that they make towards trying to be human, the way that they hold the wine glass or the different kinds of drinks that they order to make them feel warmth and you know things mm-hmm. like that. I, I love all of those little moments. There's an interesting thing that, came up to me in this book because I I had started reading Blood Communion at the same time that I was finishing up this audiobook for this uh, reread. And uh, in Blood Communion, there is a lot, especially in the beginning, there's a lot of discussion of Lestat's uh, ancestral home, the chateau. Very small spoiler, we've discussed it before, but in the new books, he has completed a restoration Mm -hmm. and expansion of the chateau in which his uh, he was born, the you know that his his father and family had his ancestral home. That home is really introduced for the first time. It's discussed obviously in the Vampire Lestat. We see the whole story of the wolves, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it is very much introduced in this novel. Akasha takes him to the ruins and shows him these you know ruined castle walls and he has a glimpse then of what it could be and imagines uh, what if i rebuilt the place etc cetera, etc cetera. i could rule from here there, again a little glimpse of what was to come years later in uh, prince lestat and the books that have followed so uh, interesting stuff there me personally i'm i'm with lestat in the end though akasha is uh very compelling she's very tempting the ride and the thrill of you know, literally being a God's consort in that way, I think would be very uh, attractive. But in the end, I would stand with the others and against, you know, madness. Uh, that That's what it is. And Lestat is right. He tells her, he tries to tell her, it'll never work. You can't build this society. The, the people will rebel against you. And if you look at, we've discussed this in other episodes, I think, um, Ashley, especially talking about like uh, the Handmaid's Tale and uh, you know dystopias. When you build this, what you imagine to be a perfect society with all the edges rounded off, all that does is uh, us humans, which are very uh, full of edges, we rub against them. 
<laughs> you know, and we're going to end up noticing more than if you had tried to leave it lumpy. It's in the Matrix, right? The, the Agent Smith says we the original Matrix Absolutely. was a perfect world, a perfect human world, but you reeled against it. You all effectively committed committed suicide because you couldn't handle a perfect world. You wouldn't believe it. Um, and I think that's I think that's very true. When you try to build a society that doesn't allow for humanity and for spontaneity um, or for alteration or whatever. Uh, the very nature of humanity bursts out of the edges of that. Well, and, you, and that's what Lestat and the rest of the vampires were showing. Absolutely. And you run into different perspectives of what perfection is, you know, like in what, what a perfect world looks like. That's different. You ask 10 people what their perfect world is. You're going to get 10 different answers, you know? And I think that that's essentially why you have that sort of rebellion against, against those false those false utopias that people try to, you know, in a lot of these, in a lot of dystopian fiction are trying to create the rebellion happens because for at least for someone, it's not their idea of perfection. So two things that we haven't touched on basically at all yet. The first of all, the actual origin of the vampires, we find out where these creatures come from. They are the off birth, the, the, um, result of the union of spirit and flesh. An actual uh, spirit creature, his name was Amel, combined with the flesh of Akasha, it turns out. The, the original legend was that it was Akasha and Inkle, but in the, in the actuality it was Akasha first and only. Uh, it combined with her, she was wounded, dying, had bled out on the floor, murdered by assassins from her cabinet, and Amel's form literally adhered to her brain and heart somehow in the core of her being and now formed this new existence as vampires. This is, first of all, a huge idea. And again, we talked earlier about the concept of the Talamasca and how that's been copied. Um, you know, the origin of vampires is something that a lot of different mythos have discussed but it wasn't really something that I don't remember anybody talking about. I don't remember reading any, anything that, that comes before this one. Um, this is a pretty darn good origin for a creature like a vampire. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This, see, this is the stuff that I I remembered from my first read. It was it was all about, like, the mythology really, really stuck with me. And so I, I remembered this story so distinctly. Um, and I love it. I love, I love the idea of... Well, I love the idea of different types of spirits, you know, that there are spirits that are cool and will play games with you and 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 do parlor tricks, essentially. And then there are obviously more mischievous uh, spirits. And then there are spirits that are that actually have intentions that are not good. And so and, you know, as as the twins are you know, in their youth. And, 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 it, and it always seems like I love that it's all passed down through that matriarchal line of the daughters of these women being able to connect to the spirits and being able to talk to the spirits and have those relationships. And, um, but it is, it's a dangerous game because you're really not in control. And that's essentially what happens here is they refused, they refused, Amel, they refused to kind of entertain his, his desires. And it resulted in, Vampires. <laughs> and it, it's such a 
it's such an interesting concept, the, the idea of spirits as these sort of immature beings, even though they're ancient, thousands and thousands of years old, the skepticism that all of the characters treat the spirits with, the idea that, you know, they, they say they all existed before humans, but maybe they didn't. We don't know whether to believe them or not, you know. All of that is such an interesting idea, and and it's particularly, I think, a reflection of the skepticism and the um, hunger for answers that Anne brings to her own struggles with religion. You know, raised, devout Catholic, uh, sort of fell away from not only Catholicism but religion at all. She's would have considered herself and did consider herself an atheist for most of her life in the middle period. And then to come back, not only to religion, but specifically to Christianity, a very sort of orthodox view of Christianity for a while. And then to open that back up into what is now kind of a, a more new agey um, universalist approach, I think is how she'd probably describe herself. Now she might even be back to being agnostic. I'm not sure, but that long weird road with God, that is, such an interesting idea, and and it's her own universe, I think, is uh, even more compelling. You know, Lestat's whole story, really, is about his quest to be good, his quest for purpose and for um, moral certainty. You know, he wants to serve a purpose in the world, and he wants that purpose to be for good. His view of what that means has changed and um, evolved a lot over the course of his life. But that is central. And for Lestat, that is still very much in relation to whatever supreme being exists for him, you know? And I think uh, that is a great example of how even with these very sort of mundane spirits, Mahare and uh, Mahari and Makare, they have that same sort of relationship with the spirits that they actually know exist. They're communicating with them. They know that these supernatural beings are real, and yet still, I don't know. Maybe today I believe in them exactly, and maybe I think that they're they did exist before us, and maybe they are some sort of next level. And then the next day, nah, they're all just dead humans, and they're all stupid and have forgotten, you know. And it's back and forth. Well, I think it's really natural in, in humanity, and you see it, you know, throughout throughout the history of, of of human and culture and religion. Like we're always trying to find answers to the unexplainable. We're always trying to find. We're trying to explain the things we don't understand, and um, and I think that that's one of the reasons why she makes sure that she imbues her, even her supernatural characters, with those with those characteristics because those are the things that connect us. Those are the things that help us understand each other. Those are the shared, shared feelings. Even, even an atheist has come to that place because they've questioned things, you know, even an agnostic, you know, an agnostic is always questioning things. Um, so many people find religion and seek religion and embrace religion because it gives them comfort or it gives them it gives them a way to explain things that they don't understand or that they're that they fear and i am um, I, I think that it's very wise of her to include those qualities in her characters and i think it's one of the things that i mean it's one of the reasons why we're still you know what 
30, 40 years later, still talking about Louis and Lestat. You know, that's the reason why we st- we're talking right now, why we still why we still care about these characters. If they if we couldn't connect to them, it would be like people don't I don't feel like people talk about the Twilight vampires like this. You know what I mean? Like it's 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 she she gives them a beautiful humanity that we can understand and relate to. Absolutely. And uh, lots of other writers can crib off of and make pale uh, examples that then sell lots of copies too. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to call any names. I'm just going to say lots of people wrote uh, trashy versions of an Anne Rice novel and they uh, have whole careers based off of it. For sure. And that's great. But, but I don't think people are as connected to that on a long-term level. You know what I mean? No, absolutely. That's, that's what I'm It's like, it's the difference between, you know, a, a fine meal and fast food. Both yeah. are sustenance of some sort. The one other big concept that we haven't talked about at all in this one yet is the great family. Uh, this is something that I remember even in my initial reading thinking, oh, this is going to have a lot more importance moving forward. This is going to matter in future books, I think, or maybe even, and I thought at the time there was some connection between the great family and uh, the Mayfair witches. There's not, uh, not directly anyway. They are sort of like... Um, mirrors of each other in that they are, you know, long-term tracked um, family connections that were tracked by matrilineal heritage, and uh, they were um, uh, were supernaturally powered in some way or supernaturally connected. But they're not connected to one another directly. I do love the idea, though, of an ancient vampire finding her purpose in following and protecting and shepherding her own human descendants. I think that is fascinating. And of all the ancient vampires that we meet in Anne's world, Mahare is the only one who's never gone to sleep. And the reason she never had was because she always had a focus and she always had an entry into the modern world. She never lost her mind. She never lost herself because she was always tied to the great family. I find that concept just absolutely fascinating. And I wish that there was more to it, uh, more done with it in these stories. Even in the modern stories, I feel like, and again, I don't want to get into spoilers, but I feel like there are different ways that she could have brought that back in one way or another, and she didn't take those opportunities. So when she has connected so many things over the years, it's interesting that that is sort of this one giant story that's just left out there. You know, you know, obviously it was used in this particular novel as a very specific example of what would be lost if Akasha won, right? The great family would be shattered if Akasha's plan was enacted. But it seems like that, I don't know, I'd like to know more members of the great family as we move forward in these stories, I would think. Well, I think it's interesting that most of our vampires don't have offspring before they became vampires. Like, Gabriel, I think, is pretty much it as far as, like, that I can think of offhand. Most of our vampires had not had children themselves, and so they don't have that same connection you know, to, to a family, to their, you know, that's how they end up creating, they end up creating their family or attempting to create their family through their, you know, preternatural offspring, through their, the vampires they sire. But even that you lose, they end up losing their connections in some ways because they can't hear each other. They can't communicate. You know what I mean? That you can't, it's just, it's, 
I think that that's one of the reasons, one of the differences between between um, Maharet and 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 the other vampires, and the reason why she why she never went to sleep, why she never had to, because she has this driving purpose that the other vampires really can't understand, but they're always seeking. Yeah, in a, in a lot of ways, it's like, um, or I should say, Marius's, uh, you know, his job of keeping uh, those who must be kept was sort of a mirror of that, a smaller version of that. He's he's keeping the vampire family while she's maintaining the great human family. Absolutely. I love this book. I love this book, particularly in retrospect, particularly when you think about uh, or, or know about some of the things that Anne is doing with the story now and as she continues it forward i think this book has even more to tell us and and add the characters and the color that she brings throughout it are just thoroughly enjoyable it is a long read particularly in comparison to the other uh two that had come before but it's i I would probably put it as my second or third favorite book in the whole series actually i am it's always been my favorite you know my 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 favorite of the books just because I really loved, I just loved the depth of it. And I loved that it introduced us to so many, so many characters though that I agree. I agree with Kelly that does get overwhelming, but so many of these characters we're going to see again. Um, This book, I fell in love. I was fascinated with Pandora and then we got a standalone book a few years later and I was so excited for that. And so I just think that, what I love so much about it is is that is that we get the great family of the vampires. You know, we get we really get to know these characters that we have maybe heard about peripherally and haven't actually seen yet, or that maybe we've heard about from other people's perspectives, but we haven't really gotten to get to know them. Like getting to spend more time with Daniel and getting to understand his character and how much Armand messes with his brain. And I love, but I love that because we only saw him through Louis's eyes in interview with a vampire. And so I, I don't know. I just, I love, I love how different it is from the first two books um, in, in, in narrative. I love how different it is in narrative voice. Um, but it's, of course it 100% feels like Anne. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so what you need to do now, if you're listening to this and you uh, have read Queen of the Damned before, uh, then you need to go out and you need to find a copy of the film. I'll tell you, you can stream it on HBO Go or HBO Now if you have one of those services. Uh, and uh, you could probably find it in your local library, too. You could probably find a copy on DVD maybe to watch if you want to. Uh, it's on uh, Amazon and iTunes as well. You can rent it if you need to there. But uh, go check out the movie so that you're ready to talk about it when we get to talk about this uh, in our next episode as well. If you've never seen it before, <laughs> oh, friend. You guys. <laughs> oh, so friend. There's just, there's so much, like all of the things that Interview with a Vampire did right with Neil Jordan and Brad Pitt and uh, Tom and that whole crew, this movie gets wrong so many of those very, very same things. It is so interesting to see the juxtaposition of of those two things. And and also the juxtaposition of 
this story laid out in you know two novels, basically the Vampire Lestat and the Queen of the Damned, uh, the Queen of the Damned, uh, both of which were longer than the books that or the book that had come before. And then in the movie, they squeeze all of that story into what is actually not that long a film. Like it's barely two hours, even I think it feels interminable. <laughs> Yeah, no, you're you guys, right. Nobody gets to the end of that movie and goes, "Man, I wish I'd left in the uh, you know the 25 minutes worth of outtakes." Where, where's the? Oh, uh, uh, I could, I could turn around and we rewatch this immediately. <laughs> said no one no. ever. No, that is very true. Do not buy it. Rent it. Do not. Do not. Do not buy. You're not going to want to watch it like once a year. It's not. It's not that movie. No, guys. no. Unless you're one of those uh, rare fans that really, really loves the soundtrack. We're going to talk about that, of course, as well, uh, folks. If you uh, like this show, we would love for you to go into Apple Podcasts and review us. Give us a rating and review if you'd like. Here's one that we got pretty recently. Uh, excellent podcast. This podcast has made my week. I have been looking and looking for a podcast discussing Anne Rice and the books and the movies forever. This was the first fandom and characters that I ever cared about, and I'm so excited for the series and this podcast. Thank you. Uh, Thank you, and uh, we'll try to uh, make more of them. That's what we'll try to do. How about that? Queen of the Damned. We'll we'll try very hard. Queen of the Damned, the movie is only, like I said, it's only two hours, so it should not take us months to get this next episode out anyway. Uh, And then after that, Tale of the Body Thief is a pretty quick read, too. So we're going to try to get those into high gear for you. And of course, We've always got our ear to the ground for new news about the upcoming TV series. If you haven't uh, been up to date on that, go back and listen to our episodes where we discuss the news laid out so far. Every now and again, Christopher will post a uh, Instagram image of he and or his mother hanging out at uh, Paramount Television Studios. So work continues. And when there is big news, particularly as casting begins, that's the next thing really that I think we're likely to hear is some of the major casting announcements. When that stuff comes up, we'll have a discussion of that as well. You can join us on Facebook. Search for Articulate Coven. We've got a Facebook group there you can join, and you can find us anytime online at articulatecoven.com. Ashley, you got anything you want to add for this episode? Just a shout out to the Facebook group. Um, I love, I've been sick almost the entire month of January, which has lasted for, I think, about a year and a half now. Um, But I love the conversation in the group. I love when you guys post things. So please, please join us and keep the conversation going. We love talking to you guys. Well, and it's one of those things that uh, for those of you that are there now or that join us after you hear this, you're going to be able to say you were there when, because I guarantee you when this TV show comes out, people are going to find the podcast, people are going to find the Facebook group, and it's going to sort of blow up overnight with people that aren't part of the in crowd that weren't here from the very beginning. And so uh, it's going to be a whole different experience. Make sure that you're one of the early adopters and uh, you could be one of the leaders of that big community as it grows uh, once the TV series gets into high gear. Um, Until next time, we have been your hosts. I'm Joel. I'm Ashley. And we are the Articulate Coven. Thanks for listening to the Articulate Coven. You can join our community on Facebook by following the links in the show notes or searching for Articulate Coven on Facebook. You can subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at ArticulateCoven.com. 
and share us with your Anne Rice-loving friends.